Welcome to Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. Do you sometimes feel alone in life with personal and interpersonal struggles and challenges? We'll show you that you are not alone and that you can learn and thrive from your challenges and thereby live a healthy life. Now, here is your host, Dr. Vadisha Patel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Perspectives. I am your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel. The loss of a loved one, a friend or a relative causes grief. And this grief comes in different forms and each one of us handles it differently. Children and adults often handle grief differently as well. And it's frequently a challenge to know where to turn for help. Having personally experienced multiple losses as a child and as an adult, I can relate to the way a person might approach grief or not approach it. I wasn't fortunate enough to have a professional to turn to through some of the more difficult times. But today, there are many more options. And I have two guests that I will be speaking with today about grief. They both work at Our House Grief Center. And in the first half of the show, I will be speaking with Freda Wasserman, the Special Projects Director for Our House. Freda is a licensed marriage and family therapist. And She has uh, also been certified in thanatology, which is death, dying, and bereavement. And I am thrilled to welcome you to the show, Freda. Thank you for joining me today on Perspectives. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's delightful to be with you. So this is a this is a difficult topic, um, and I have to add in before we get started that I actually know about our house because of a personal situation where a very a close friend of mine that I grew up with passed away, and your center mm. was incredibly supportive of the children and her husband through the whole process and afterwards, um, and I was really touched by everything that the center provided for them. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about our house and what you offer and where you're located and stuff like that. Yes. Well, um, I'm delighted to hear that you have some personal, almost, you know, secondhand information and experience with our house. We've been in existence in the Los Angeles area for 26 years. Okay. And our whole premise is that we are not a mental health center. We are a support center because we believe that it is a bit of a misnomer to identify grief as some kind of a psychiatric disorder when we know that grief is the most normal and natural reaction after someone close dies, even though, of course, the feelings that we have don't feel very normal (laughs) or very natural. But um, we want to kind of demystify some of the grief process, and we, what we provide are support groups. And okay. as you mentioned, we have groups for children from the ages of four and a half up and for adults of all ages. And everyone in the adult program is specifically in a group according to how old they are and also specific to who died and when that death occurred. And the truth is, I guess, people, um, there are so many universal parts to grief that in some ways the four-year-olds are saying the same kinds of things that the the 94-year-olds are saying. But people find that it's just more comfortable and easy to converse when you're with a peer. 
Okay, because that was so going to be my whole, question, really, is yeah. I, I understand the difference between the way a child may process or understand what's happening versus an adult, but why would mm-hmm. the what what would be the difference in age within the adult population, say? Mm-hmm. Well, say a 30-year-old widow who's experienced the death of her partner or spouse comes to us, and um, it is our experience over all these years that there is such relief when we say you are 30 and you're going to be with other people who are in their 20s, 30s, and early 40s who've also experienced the death of their partner. And when you realize that you're going to be with your peers, I mean, most places, most centers, and there are certainly many resources for adults in the community through community centers, through hospitals, through hospices, through religious organizations, most often when someone walks into a grief group in one of those agencies, most of the people are senior citizens. And when you're 30 and you walk in there, even though you're welcome and people are experiencing so many of the same kinds of emotions, you just don't feel quite like you fit. And even those seniors might say, oh, you know, she's so young or he's so young. And then when you come in and you say, oh, my gosh, I'm not. You come to our house and you're in a group and you say, I'm not the only 30-year-old who's experienced the death of my partner. You start really relating. Um, I'm running a group right now of people in their 60s. And they, too, express that this is the only place they can talk about their feelings with someone who's in their same life stage. And that it's different if they were talking to someone much younger than maybe the age of their children or someone much older the age of their parent. So being with peers seems to make a huge difference as well as the fact that if that same 30-year-old came instead because their sibling died, then they'd be in that group. If their own child died, they'd be in that group. If their parent died, they'd be with others who would experience the death of a mom or dad. And that is what consistently people tell us over 26 years has made such a huge difference to be with your peers, with the same relationship, and you just feel freer, you feel more understood, and it normalizes a lot of what you are going through. So that's the basis of why we divide. We do not divide people according to the cause of death. Okay. Because uh, what we find is that the feelings are universal. And even though in the in first moment of saying, oh, this one died from a long-term illness, and this other one died from homicide, and this other one died from suicide, and this other one died very suddenly in an accident. In the first minutes, you know, you, people are curious a lot about the circumstances of the death. But what right. they find as we go deeper is that everybody feels sad sometimes, and everybody feels angry sometimes, or guilty or has wonderful memories. Um, And so those are the things that bind the group together. So that's really interesting because um, my mother passed away when I was 14. So we had Mm -hmm. my father grieving his spouse, me Mm -hmm. grieving my mother, my brother grieving our mother, um, and Mm -hmm. grandparents grieving the loss of their child. Right. Right. 
it's it is interesting because we all had uh, we had a different perspective. It was a different type of loss, loss indeed, That's but right. but very different. And um, mm-hmm. as I said at the introduction of the show, back then and in the community that I lived in, there you know everyone basically said, uh, yes, it's sad, yes, it's difficult, and now you need to move forward. So mm-hmm. um, it's <laughs> wonderful to know that there are resources like this out in the community for people to access um, because I don't think that that was a good solution. (laughs) Well, you're right. And the other piece about our groups is that they're long-term groups. So they might be nine months or 18 months or 24 months because what people sometimes don't realize in the beginning is that you aren't going to go to a group for a couple of weeks and, get all the tears out and be done. But in fact, as time goes on, weeks and months, a couple of things happen. One is that you're a large part of your support system in your community by a couple of months or several months has they've gone back to their regular life. Right. And they think that maybe you have to and they hope because they care about you and they love you and they want don't want to see you in so much pain. They hope that you too are in, sometimes people say, you know, beyond it or getting over it or putting it behind you. And we know that that's not true. That as time goes on, all sorts of different feelings begin to arise. Because in the beginning, no matter what the cause of death is, when you first either witness that person's death or get the word they have died, just about everybody goes into shock. It's nature's way of protecting us. Even if you're you're anticipating it, even if somebody's in hospice and you're... Yes. Yes, I'm glad you asked that because even when... I think of death on a, a continuum in terms of at one end of the spectrum is what you're saying. Someone even very, very old and very, very sick, and we're waiting to hear that they have died. And then right. at the other end of the spectrum, someone very young, very suddenly. And then all the deaths fall somewhere along that, along that continuum. But even when you're expecting the death, most people say, well, I didn't expect it to happen today. Right. I knew they were dying, but what? You, are you sure you called the right phone number? How can that possibly be? I just saw them this morning. I just talked to them yesterday. Wait a minute. How can this really be? So there is shock that sets in not every single person. We can't say that, but most people, and oftentimes people don't even realize that they've been in shock until maybe a few months later when the shock starts wearing off a little bit. And it's really nature's way of cocooning us a little bit, giving us some protection so that we can make it through those early days and weeks. So it's interesting that you said several months. I I wouldn't Mm -hmm. have guessed um, that the shock would last Mm -hmm. as much as several months. Um, Mm -hmm. And that sort of leads into this question. Um, There's a lot of fair amount of writing out there about stages of grief and how we go through stages of grief. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts about that? <laughs> of course. And when I do my teaching 
for whether it's social workers or chaplains or doctors or nurses, I often will ask what they have possibly learned about grief. And almost everyone refers to our great uh, mentor, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, right. who was the physician, the psychiatrist, who initially, in the late 60s, started writing about the stages that people go through when they are dying. Mm -hmm. And I had the privilege of helping to edit the final book that she wrote towards the very end of her life using those same stages as, as part of grieving. And while it's just been revolutionary and phenomenal that she is so articulate in identifying so much of what people go through, we follow a little different model. Okay. That when we talk about stages, it's almost sometimes sounds to many people like it's a checklist. Right. Well, today I'm in denial, and tomorrow I'm in anger, and next day I was in bargaining. It isn't linear like that. It's more circular, more like just going in a roller coaster pattern. Uh-huh. And although many of these things that many of these particular emotions do surface at different times. The model that we follow is the theories of J. William Warden, who is a local um, theorist and a brilliant man in, and highly respected in the field of breeding. He's right here in Southern California. And he talks about the tasks, that's his term, of what people are facing as they grieve. And in no specific order... Okay. And he talks about accepting just the reality that someone has died, which is different than accepting the knowledge because, you know, we got the call or we saw their body before they were buried or cremated. So we know intellectually they've died. But how can it really be? You know, and how many times does someone go to the phone and something happens and you just can't wait to call that particular person and say, oh, oh wait a minute, no, no, no they're not going to be able to answer that phone. And so from moment one, I mean, when someone dies, we we have to call maybe the mortuary to pick Mm -hmm. up the body. Well, we don't call and say, please come and pick up the body until the person has actually died. So that's part of accepting reality. But what about 10 years later when when, um, someone graduates from a, a... master's program or when someone buys a new house or has an important life event event that they so much, that's the person who would have cared and celebrated or been with them in that moment. And how can it be that they're not here? I am so so relieved to hear you say this because Mm -hmm. um, that's been my experience in my life. And Mm -hmm. um, I've spoken with some other um, authors about, uh, about a little bit about grief and it's their trigger points in life later on so the birth of a child or a marriage or something and, Absolutely. you know you yes. would want that person there and then you realize yeah. all over again so it almost feels as if you go through this grieving process all over again yeah, um, yeah. And when those triggers come, you're so right. They, it, the sensations and emotions can be really strong, sometimes almost as strong as they were even in the very beginning. And 
The difference is that as time goes on, especially if you've had an opportunity to be processing your grief and talking about it and sharing about it, the difference is that these huge waves of deep grief, they just don't last quite as long, you know? And then they they don't come as frequently as they do in the beginning. The grief isn't in front right in front of your face twenty four hours a day. Right. So but yes, in in, in your mm-hmm. groups, then what kinds of things do you do? Because I imagine reliving right. the loss is probably very traumatic to be reliving it in the group. So how do you manage the groups that are not? You know, you said it's not a Therapeutic. Mm-hmm. It's therapeutic, it's not, but not therapy. It's support. So, yeah. um, just so you get another little picture of these tasks of grief. Task two is experiencing the pain. There's okay. no way to detour around that. If we don't deal with some of that anger and sadness and guilt and all of the various feelings, positive and negative ones, if we don't deal with them now, we're going to deal with them later. And that's what comes up in the group. Now, if I'm thinking and say in my group, I just can't get the picture out of my mind of those final moments of their life or of seeing them lying there in the casket. Some people might say to that griever, you you just have to stop thinking about that and just remember all the good times. Well... We have plenty of opportunities in our groups to talk and reminisce about wonderful times, but we don't want to leave a griever alone in those thoughts and those memories. And it's cathartic and helpful and relieving to say, well, what did you see in the hospital room? What was that? What was it like? What do you remember about the funeral? And to be able to talk about that in front of witnesses in front of other people who totally get what you're saying because they've been just been through this as well. That's part of, that's what we talk about processing grief. It's being able to talk about it and share about it and having someone or someone's, I should say, be uh-huh. empathetic and caring and, and want to hear what you have to say because so much of the time, especially as, and you were asking, as months go on, nobody's talking about it anymore. Last right. night in my group of widows and widowers, they said, this is the, and it's been about, about one and a half years to two years since their partners died. So this is the only place. Nobody, nobody brings up my partner anymore. No one mentions their name. No one asks me now how I'm doing. They just assume everything is fine, but I still have a broken heart. And yes, I'm functioning. I'm doing really well in my life, which is part of task three in Morton's task. So adjusting to life and living a full life. But it doesn't mean that the grief has disappeared, even though the okay. world seems to think that it has or that it should. And so having an ongoing place to say, I want to tell you a really wonderful memory that I have and something really sweet that brought a smile to my face or a tear to my eye and people in group are interested in that and they do want to hear it and they do want to support each other give support to each other receive support from each other and that 
is the magic of what happens in a group. That's a little different from being one-on-one with a therapist, which we also highly endorse if people are looking for individual therapists. We have people who we have trained and we know they know what they're doing um, in terms of the grief work that we are happy to refer them to. And there are certain things that are best done one-on-one. We get, however, most of our referrals from therapists and social workers. You say, you know, the work we're doing one-on-one, this is amazing, it's great, it's important. And wouldn't it be great for you to meet other people your age who are experiencing some of what you're experiencing? Well, absolutely, because I know in my practice, um, when I have worked with people with grief, that's what I'm always searching for is some place for them to go where mm-hmm. they can see mm-hmm. that they're not alone in this process. Mm-hmm. That's right. Normalizes it. Helps them feel not alone. That's, that's so essential. And we know people who were in our groups 26 years ago, and they're still on their own outside of our house getting together. They, become, they form deep friendships. There's a bond when you go through something like this with others that forms that, that can, the bond can last a long time. And we want to make sure that we're addressing task four, which is helping people to maintain a positive, loving connection with the memory of the person who died. And how do you do Not that? Forget about them. Well, including them in your conversation. When here comes next, um, we just are having Labor Day weekend, and if there were traditions that you had, and that person was always there and part of the, the festivities or whatever, to talk about them, to be able to um, maybe sitting at the Thanksgiving table, say, do you remember how much Dad loves pumpkin pie and those corny jokes he used to tell? Or in whatever way to keep them alive. I had the occasion to be talking with a group um, last week. A gentleman was in his 80s, and he said, um, you know, sometimes I just sit and watch a movie or a television program, and I I just want to turn, and my wife has died, and I just want to turn to her and just say, isn't that interesting or funny or how much she would enjoy it? He says, and every time I do that, I get mad at myself and say, no, no, you shouldn't be doing that. You have to forget. You have to put that behind you. And he was so relieved when we had this discussion about how wonderful to keep her memory alive. Right. It isn't natural for us to forget about someone or not have memories. And when the world doesn't have a place for us to, to be able to talk and share, it, it is very, very lonely. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think also, so in the case of losing a parent at a young age, when you have children, um, Mm -hmm. it's often so that your children don't know that grandparent to somehow be able to bring that into their lives also by speaking about it. great. Yes. To be able to say, do you know what your grandpa used to do, your grandma used to do, your cousin used to do? And people... You should really enjoy hearing those stories. It might bring a tear. It might make someone sad. But that's part of the process, too. Right. Why wouldn't we be sad when we, that that person isn't able to be here? But to continue their legacy and the lessons 
that we learned from them and the and the things they taught us and how beautiful to continue to celebrate that. That's wonderful. So and most people, um, yeah. are, are there, we have about two minutes or so left, so I want to make sure ah, that you can okay. get all our tasks in. So That what? I, w- I want to make sure that you can get to the other, if there are any more tasks in this um, model. Oh, those that are use. the four tasks. Those are the okay. four tasks. Um, accepting reality, experiencing the pain, adjusting to life, and allowing, finding ways to maintain a loving connection with the person in the midst of your full and ongoing life. And I and just want to add one other thing. Go, yeah, if I yes. may, or do you have some other Absolutely. Questions? No, absolutely. Go ahead. I'm just thinking about how often when we are trying to support someone who's grieving and we don't know what to say or do. Yes. And on our website, which you can direct your listeners to, uh, there's a whole lot of resources, one of which is about what to say and do. And one thing that grievers don't like to hear is, well, it's all for the best. (laughs) Or I know just. I know exactly how you're feeling. Um, it, those things are said in caring ways, but they don't always land well on the griever's ears. And so better to say, tell me about your mom. What was she like? I never knew her. Or, you know, I, I, I know this is your first Father's Day without your dad. What's that like for you? And... Just reaching out and being with someone and daring to bring up a person who died. If the griever doesn't want to talk about them, they won't, they'll change the subject themselves. Right. But how comforting to know that someone cares enough to say something. So that we really encourage that. Those are beautiful suggestions. And personally, I can, I can vouch for how much better they are than the mm-hmm. um, it's all for the best comment. Um, so yeah, yeah. I wanted to thank you so much for spending time with us today on Perspectives. There's so much more we could talk about, Freda. I really appreciate your being here. Um, we have been hearing from Freda Wasserman about a little bit about the grieving process and what our house offers as support. We're going to go to a short commercial break, and we'll be right back to speak with another specialist on grief, also from our house. So please stay tuned. If you have questions, you can email me, Dr. Vidisha Patel, at drvforkids at yahoo.com, and we will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you stopped to think seriously about hypnosis? Hypnosis can set you on your way to better health, can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for Hypnosis Everywhere. Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere, The Simpson Protocol, airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. 
Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks. Live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are tuned into Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. If you would like to reach the show today, please call into 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. That's Dr. V, the number four, kids at yahoo.com. Now, back to Perspectives. Welcome back to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel. We've been talking with specialists from Our House Grief Center about the grief process. In the first half of the show, we talked to Freda Wasserman, and now I have the pleasure of bringing on Lauren Schneider. Um, Lauren is a licensed clinical social worker, and she's the clinical director of the child and adolescent programs at our house. So welcome, Lauren, and thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. So um, we talked a little bit with Freda about some of the services offered for adults as well as um, the grief process, and I wanted to save the portion about children and teens for you because that's your specialty, and so I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about what grief looks like for children and teens. Okay. Well, um, it looks very different than it does for adults. So, um, so it's good that, that we're going to spend some time talking about that. Um, it, uh, children will, um, for the most part, look like other children when they're grieving because they're going to be trying to hide it from their peers and attempt to you know, to fit in with other kids and and not stand out because there's a high price to pay when you look different than your peers as a child. Um, you know, too often kids who are grieving end up being the targets of bullies um, or they just get left out at school because they're not as fun as their non-bereaved peers. Um, and that that's true in high school, too. Um, a lot of our high school-aged grievers share, both the males and the females, that they um, their friendships change a lot, um, when, especially when they've had a parent that died, because um, they feel that their, their non-bereaved friends don't understand and... Um, and that they're just not there for them in the way that they need them to be. 
Well, um, in the first half of the show, I had shared with the listeners and with Freda that my mother passed away when I was 14, so I had just started high school, and you make oh, a, that's a hard excellent... It was, you make an excellent point, because as much as friends wanted to be supportive, I don't think they knew how to be, and this was obviously uh-huh. a long time ago, so I think um, there there wasn't enough um, support in not just for the child who's grieving, but for the others around them to know how to respond. So, right, and I don't um, think that's changed that much, unfortunately. You know, as a society, the change that needs to happen is happening very, very slowly. That kids still feel at a loss, and and um, you know that um, schools are are attempting to be more supportive places for grieving children, but change is happening very slowly there, too. There, um, there's something good happening in the LAUSD, um, the Los Angeles Unified School District, um, where um, there's a program to help teachers become better prepared because most um, most teachers receive no training at all when they're going through their teacher training on how to support grieving children in the classroom. But, um, I mean, I can tell you about that program more later, but um, New York Life is dedicating a great deal of effort to educating teachers to provide grief-sensitive classrooms. That's wonderful. um, Yeah, so, and then... um, you know, school-based counselors and school social workers are, have caseloads that are far too large to be there for the number of grieving children that there are in a classroom. Um, so the number's quite, quite large, and it depends on what part of the country you're in, um, how many kids in Los Angeles or in California one in 20 children will have a parent or sibling die by the time they're 18. But wow. the number goes, the number's much higher in other parts of the country that are impacted more, for example, by like an, the opioid crisis where, you know, it can go as, up to one in 14 um, in some of, in, in other states. So um, Freda was saying that, in at our house, it doesn't matter what the cause of death was for the adult groups mm-hmm. that they're grouped by age. How right. are the children and teens grouped? Are they also grouped by age? That's or? true. Yeah, we group children by age in all our programs in our school-based program and in our camps. We don't separate people by cause of death. And, you know, in other um, grief support centers, they'll sometimes have a group for suicide survivors or homicide survivors. But um, we, you know, we, we don't do that. We um, find that there's the kids have enough in common with each other um, that those differences um, don't really matter. And how so, are your um, how are your groups set up? How you know how well, long are they? And... For one thing, our groups, um, Fred probably told you, are led by um, they're led by volunteers. They're not led by therapists. We don't do 
therapy groups and um, you know we're, our model is is based on a, the belief that most people when they're grieving are having a natural reaction to a life cycle event and they're not requiring um, a mental health um, uh, you know a mental health intervention from a from a mental health provider. Um, that's not to say that some people don't also need a mental health intervention. You know, a lot of grieving children um, may experience um, depression or an anxiety reaction. Um, some grieving children or teens may even experience post-traumatic stress disorder. But it's a, 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 a small percentage of all the grieving children in this country that experience that extreme reaction. That's also you know, really the, interesting because I would have... I sometimes I feel it might be more traumatic for children, but uh, I'm not really sure where I got that idea from, whether it was personal experience or whether mm-hmm. it was something else. But it just um, it, loss, especially of a parent or um, witnessing a, a frightening death of somebody that they're close mm-hmm. to seems like it would be a a very difficult thing to process, especially for the younger kids. I mean, how you said you started four and a half with your children? We do have kids as young as four in our program um, because we work with children without their parent in the room. Um, You know, you could have a younger child in a grief support setting if their parent were present. It would be possible to work with younger children, but, but our group's don't include the grown-up. So that's the reason we don't have younger kids. But, um, you know, all death is traumatic, no matter what the cause. So having a parent die from brain cancer is going to be extremely traumatic for a five-year-old child. You know, watching their child dying slowly from a extremely painful and debilitating illness is very, very traumatic for a child to witness. Sure. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're going to succumb to a mental illness because of that. Um, the truth is, is, you know, as you probably ex- yourself experienced, most kids are very, very resilient, you know, and yes. they are able to, you know, to adapt to their life without their parent who died in, you know, in a pretty, you know, pretty quickly if they have some basic supports in place. You know, it's going to depend a lot on the, um, you know, how healthy the the caregiver is in their life. That's going to make a huge difference. And so how do you start working with the children? Because I'm, I imagine that at process our house. is different at our yes at our house. Because I imagine that process is different than an adult coming in. Because the adult can bring themselves in. Yeah, that's true. So, so the the one thing that we have to do first of all is um, we have to determine if the child is ready. So, a parent is going to have a really difficult time seeing their child in pain. 
they're going to be very worried about how this death is going to impact their child long term. You know, is it going to impact their ability to form relationships? Are they going to be afraid to get close to people? In fact, I was just reading somebody who was saying they're so afraid that their son is not going to get close to people because they've had so many people die who they got close to. So they're going to have all of these ideas running through their head and they're going to bring their child in and be very anxious to get their child in the program. But on the other hand, the child might not be ready to talk about the death yet um, because child children initially deal with um, the death of someone close with distraction. You know, they they don't think about it. They're very capable about not thinking about it for long periods of time and focusing on other things like, you know, like their video games or their friends, you know, their sports, their, um, you know, their homework. And, um, you know, if the parent brings them in and forces them to talk to us um, to engage in the um, intake process, which is, you know, an interview where we review what happened and see if the child understands, you know, what their understanding is of their parents' death and, you know, if they are ready to talk about it in a support group setting with other children, they may not, you know, they may not be ready to do that yet in the first, in the first few months after the death. So, um, you know, so we're really assessing if the child is ready and they'll, uh, they'll show us if they're not ready, they don't want to sit down in the room even. They'll, they'll, uh, they'll let us know they're in too much pain um, by their behavior, you know, how they act when they come in the front door and, you know, I'll have to let their parent know that the child is just not ready yet to do this and, and that we'll, we will postpone it for, you know, three or four months and try again, maybe when it's been six months since the death. And by then, the child maybe will have developed some of their own natural abilities to cope with thoughts about their person who died. They have to be able to tolerate thinking about the person who died without going into a very agitated, um, heightened state of uh, arousal and anxiety in order to participate in a support group. Right. So... um Freda talked about the initial shock when anybody when anybody close to you dies and that it lasts for several months. Is that part of what's playing into the uh, smaller child's reaction or behavior that might um, make them I'm, not ready I'm to sorry, talk? Can you say that again? So Freda talked about um, initially everyone or most everyone reacts in shock when somebody close to them dies. And so I'm wondering, is if the child is in shock, is that what makes them not ready necessarily to uh-huh. come well, to come to a support they group? They might be in shock. There there's like a numbness, um, like a protective kind of numbness that keeps people from experiencing the really intense emotion that's going to come along um, a little bit later. Um, So that's true, but 
For kids, it's slightly different because adults know. They know and they understand what death means. They know that the person has died and is never coming back and that their body doesn't work anymore. And and they know what caused the death and all of these factors, um, you know, different things and concepts. But a child, um, especially a child under age 10, is is... If it's the first death in their family, they don't they haven't learned these things yet about death and they're gonna be struggling to make sense of what's going on around them. They're going to have to acquire language. They're uh, and if people aren't being truthful with them entirely about what happened, if they're receiving mixed messages or or being told things in like euphemistic language instead of honest, concise, straightforward, simple um, language. It's making it very, very hard for them to understand what's happening at first. So, so you, that actually um, that, that, that actually leads into a question that I have: How do mm-hmm. we talk to young children about death? What do you recommend? Well, we always recommend that you tell them the truth. Um, and you do that from the beginning. You tell them um, the truth in very simple language, um, depending on their age, you know, sm- a little bit of information at first, and and then you add on information based on whatever questions they have. So... As, you know, a two-year-old is not going to have any questions at all. A four-year-old probably won't have questions either. So you just tell them the basics, like, you know, of what happened. And then the way you know if you need to ask more, add more information is you say, do you have any questions about, you know, what happened to mommy or what happened to daddy? And if they say yes, then you answer whatever their question is. Okay. That way, that's what lets you know that they're ready for more information. Right. I think there's sometimes there's a tendency either to, quote unquote, protect the children by not giving them honest information or um, to get to to sort of question the fact that they have no questions, the opposite extreme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So it really is about, as it is with most types of parenting, it's it's good to take the lead of the child to see what they're ready for. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And pe- people, I think the biggest problem with that process is that people are afraid that kids won't be able to tolerate the truth. And it's that's not true at all. They can totally handle the truth. What what is what is so destructive for children is when they're lied to because they are always going to find out the truth and and it's much worse for them to, when they find out that they weren't told the truth. That's what's destructive for children um, and it does impact their relationships and so forth when they find out that the people they trust the most in their life were not honest with them. Yes, I actually have an adult I know who found out in her 30s that her father had committed suicide and he hadn't uh-huh. died from an Ill, um, a medical illness or a physical illness. Um, and that so many years later was devastating 
for her because it did shatter that level of trust. Mm -hmm. So um, I would agree with you definitely about that. Um, So Mm -hmm. what what do your groups look like with four-year-olds versus, I'm trying to envision a group of Mm -hmm. four to six-year-olds, say, um, trying to process this. What does that look like? Uh Uh-huh. Well, we one thing we do with the younger kids is we we do several activities because they don't have the attention span that the older kids have. They can't do a lot of writing and drawing. You know, their small motor isn't as good. So we read to them. We you know we might do puppets um, where they can act out things with the puppets. Um, we have games with balls. Um, or um, like these frogs with feeling words on them and balls with feeling words on them. Um, you know, we'll play like a hot potato kind of game with that. Um, you know, things that involve movement. We teach them coping skills, so okay. we'll teach them um, different kinds of breathing techniques that they can use to, to calm themselves when they feel upset. So they learned coping strategies that they can use. And, um, you know, and then they practice telling their story about who died in their family and how their person died. And, and they, they talk about... Um, you know, if they went to the funeral, what they remember about that and, you know, and what their life like is like now without that person, what they're doing for their birthday parties and for holidays and, you know, and who they live with now and what, the, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, we'll have a small, um, you know, discussion time during each group, too. And how long are these, do these groups typically last for are they an hour or last about an hour total you know but part of it is the check-in time and um you know where they tell they each tell their story and and um you know we'll we'll do a little some kind of a little art project that doesn't involve some some write you know the, the writing that the older kids can do like i said and and a story and some movement thing and you know, um, it goes by really fast. I'm sure. I'm sure. And then how how do you group them by age after that? What are the other age categories? Well, so like the next group, so let's say if we had a four to six-year-old group or a five to seven-year-old group, then like a six to eight-year-old group, and then, um, you know, a small small age groups as possible here in our offices. But at school, in our school program, we have a group at an elementary school, we have a group at a middle school, and a group at a high school. So we had, we did, um, I think we did 70 school groups this past school year. We had over 800 students that we served in our school program this past school year. So those are... You know, those groups have um, slightly bigger age spans, and that works out fine. And those groups are, you know, one period in length for 10 weeks. So you actually, um, volunteers from our house actually go into the school system, or do you train Mm -hmm. school? We send our school, um, we send our volunteer with with our curriculum. It's a curriculum-based program, and and then a member um, of the, school faculty 
um, sits in the classroom while we do the group. And do you find that 10 weeks, I'm guessing that's based on the school semester, is that sufficient time or do you find these groups continue on you know, after I, that? We're, ha- we're happy to have 10 weeks with them. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's, it, 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 it is an, it's an effective, um, you know, short-term model that, that is, it can be very helpful and, you know, it allows us to serve more children working in that, uh, in a 10-week increment at a school. Then we can move on to another school and serve more kids that way. And so in your center, how, a typical how long? length of time. And, and in your center, do the groups go on for longer? or? Yeah, those are open-ended. So people can, can stay in group for a couple can, years, but those they can stay a couple years. But those are remember those are um, parentally bereaved kids, so that death is much harder for kids to get used to. So they need more time than in a group maybe where there's kids who had a grandparent or an auntie who died. Okay, so your school groups you're saying are typically not parental. Well, no, there will be parental kids there, too, but there will be other kids as well. So they're mixed in terms of who died. Okay. So, you know, we're... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, when we're going out to the schools, we're trying to to bring a service to as as many kids as we possibly can who who don't have the ability to make it to one of our offices because they live too far away or they um, they don't have somebody who could drive them after school. Right. Well, I think it's a marvelous program. And I had mentioned in the first half of the show that I actually have personal experience of the services you offer through um, the, a, fr- a friend of mine who passed away and her kids um we're able to get a lot of support from your center. And so oh, uh, I think hear that. it's wonderful work that you're doing. We have about a minute left. I was wondering if you could just share maybe the website and very quickly some of the services that you do offer for, so that our listeners would know where to find what you do. Well, the, the other thing that we haven't mentioned is that we offer um, Camp Aaron Los Angeles, which is our grief support camp. It's a two-night sleepaway camp for kids 6 through 17. And we have two sessions um, in the summer. And in February of 2020, we'll have applications on our website for camp for next year. It's a free camp. We provide transportation to camp. And um, the website is ourhouse-grief.org. And for um, people that are interested in applying to camp, um, we take kids up to three years um, from the time of the death to the date of camp. And it's a, it's a very magical program, even though it's just one weekend. It's a, both a very fun, um, you know, relaxing, nice, just great getaway weekend for the kids, but they get a lot of great um, grief support um, during that weekend as well. That sounds like a wonderful opportunity, especially for people locally in California. So I want to thank you so much for spending time with me today on Perspectives. I've been talking with Lauren Schneider from Our House out in 
in the Los Angeles area during this segment about grief and children. This is Dr. Vidisha Patel, your host for Perspectives. I look forward to being back with you next week for another edition. So feel free to email me at drvforkids at yahoo.com with any questions or comments. I'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, have a wonderful week. Until next time. Thank you for listening to our program this week. Another edition of Perspectives with Dr. Vidisha Patel can be heard next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Until we talk again, have a lovely week.